attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Corporal Captain Rob Kelly, and joining us in the VIP tent this week is Sergeant Sean Ross. Hi, Sean. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. I got a promotion. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> I, I, what did I say last time? I think I did. I say corporal, maybe. Or I, I, I think I was a corporal. I might have been a private. I might. I might have been like just uh, you know. Hey, you. I think hey, you might have been my rank. <laughs> you're moving up through the ranks. Well, again, you've you've been you've proven to be a mash cast all star because you're back for for season two. Uh, of course, we already know about your secret origin with the show. So let's get right into the episode in question, which is uh, from season two, episode thirty, Kim. Original air date, October 20th, 1973. Written by Mark Mandel, Larry Gelbart, and Lawrence Marks. And directed by William Weard. One of the wounded in surgery is an angel-faced five-year-old boy named Kim. The doctors ask Radar if he can track down Kim's parents. In the meantime, though, Hawkeye and Trapper try and take care for the kid, including reading to him from a trashy paperback and giving him a jar of pickled onions. (laughs) Henry and Margaret also chip in. As Trapper makes toy balloons for the kid made from rubber gloves, he grows attached to the boy. Meanwhile, Henry talks to a local orphanage, making plans for them to take Kim if his parents can't be found. Radar draws a blank on finding Kim's parents, and Trapper decides he can't stand the idea of Kim going to the orphanage. He writes his wife, asking her if she'd be willing to adopt the little boy. He wonders whether it's a mistake, but Hawkeye assures him, how can it be a mistake giving a kid his life? In the meantime, they all spend time with Kim. Trapper teaches him magic tricks. Hawkeye takes him to the movies. Hot Lips reads to him. Klinger plays catch with him. Finally, a letter from Trapper's wife arrives, and she's agreed to adopt Kim. Hawkeye, Trapper, and Father Mulcahy enjoy a celebratory cigar. That same day, Frank and Hot Lips take Kim on a picnic, but they're so busy making moon eyes at each other that they don't notice (laughs) Kim has wandered into a nearby minefield. Trapper runs into the minefield to rescue him, but stops halfway when he realizes what he's doing. Hot Lips yells at Kim, sitting on a rock, in Korean, telling him not to move. Hawkeye grabs the maps for the minefield, and Henry directs Trapper through it. But halfway through, they realize it's the wrong map. It's a World War II surplus map. Just as they find the right map, a chopper pilot arrives and lowers a rope to Trapper, lifting him up over to Kim. He then scoops Kim up, and they are carried to safety. As they celebrate, Sister Teresa unexpectedly shows up, along with Kim's mother, who showed up at the orphanage looking for her son. They embrace, and Kim leaves along with them. Trapper stands in the road, watching the truck leave. He tries to make the best of it, suggesting that back home, Kim is the kind of kid who would cross against the lights. Hawkeye offers him a drink, and they walk back to the swamp. Later, Raider tells them that Kim will come back for visits, which make both Hawkeye and Trapper feel much better. So, all right, that is Kim. Uh, Sean, I'm betting that you feel similarly than I do that this is a tremendous episode. Yeah, this is I, I so far, and I, you know, I'm I'm in my great mash rewatch build when I put my name in for this one, and I got it back. I mean, it was either this or Five O'clock Charlie, which apparently everybody put in for. Yeah, everybody asked for that <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> but no, I love this episode. This has, and this literally has everything that makes Mash great. It's got, I mean, the the rapid fire humor, and the jokes come so fast that I watched this thing three times to try to find my favorite one. And then there's a great emotional component. You know, you're you're shown the nobility of the characters, but then there's that mash uppercut, you know, that just kind of takes the rug out from under you. And it's it's perfect. It's the perfect mash episode. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the nice things about this one, uh, and this is something that I've been sort of paying more attention to ever since I started doing the podcast, is that this is a 
a Trapper episode. You know, this is a mm-hmm. Trapper heavy episode. I mean, and you know, of course, the the complaint about Hawkeye and Trapper versus Hawkeye versus BJ was that they were much more similar characters. They were both womanizing and heavy drinkers. And so, therefore, when BJ came in, you had more of a contrast, and that led to slightly more interesting stories. But in in this episode, at the, at the very least, there is that stark contrast that that for all of Trapper's boozing and all of his womanizing and all of his partying ways, he is also a father, uh, and he's deeply, deeply, deeply attached to his children, and he has an affinity for children that Hawkeye just doesn't have. You know, Hawkeye's not a, not an ogre or anything, but he just is not a, a he's not a, a father type figure. But Trapper immediately takes this little boy, and that's this is something you know, reaching out to his wife and saying, "I want to adopt this little kid," is not something Hawkeye could do. So this is something very specific to to Trapper, and I'm I would imagine Wayne Rogers must have been thrilled when he got this script because it put it paints his character in such a wonderful light. It's such a warm, loving gesture. That they would adopt this little kid, take him, you know, take him out of this this horrible situation, and bring him back to America. Uh, like I said, really, it, it makes like I said, both Hawkeye and Trapper and Henry and everybody the way they take, and even Margaret, which we'll talk about more. But it makes everybody look really good. And one of the, the funny things about this is Trapper is so sweet to Kim here. It's sort of funny that in later episodes, like Frank calls Trapper like a moral degenerate. Like, how can you call him a moral degenerate? Like, clearly, when, when it's in the clutch, Trapper delivers. You know, it's so unfair. It's really very sweet. There's some hard lines here, though. This this episode, as much as I love it, it did it did bring a bright yellow highlighter to the fact that Trapper is married with kids, and they conveniently let that fall to the wayside at times when they show him womanizing, oh, yeah, you know, when you catch him around. in the supply closet. Yeah, and, and it's... You know, it's fine. It's it's part of his character. I mean, it's not fine if you're his wife, but it's part of his character. <laughs> but I, I have to say, like, I – this episode kept bringing that in my face when he's, like, writing his wife. He's talking about how, what a great wife he has and she's the best woman. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that that's awesome. Did you remember that when you were in the supply closet with, you know, Nurse of the Week? Like, I so, – so I have to say this episode um, – I, I kind of side with Frank a little bit. I was like, hey, he is a little bit of a moral degenerate, but he's lovable. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> the show definitely – dial down the womanizing in the later seasons when you had Colonel Potter and BJ who were much more devoted family men. Uh, Cause I mean, in here it's like everybody is cheating on their wife. Henry's cheating. I mean, it's just, oh my God. It's just the coin of the realm at the four seven seventh at this point. And the swamp might as well have been my college dorm room. Like I cannot <laughs> believe Hawkeye and, and that, that nurse are, are clearly, you know, sort of a post coital hug in the middle of the of the swamp with all the shades up, and and she's sitting there going, "Well, you know, Trapper's been laying there the whole time." And Hawk's like, "He's asleep. He's asleep. He's asleep." I mean, they might as well have put a sock on the door. Like I was like, "It's it's incredible." And I get it. I mean, again, I went to college. I get it. But I was laughing because I was like, "Oh my god, this is like, yeah, this it's, this is might as well be Animal House, but with you know bombs dropping." <laughs> the button on that scene is great too, where they they keep going on and on about, "No, no, 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 Trapper's asleep." And then, yeah. then Father Mulcahy shows up, and I'm looking for Trapper. And you're like, yeah, he's like, I'm here, but I'm asleep. And of course, he's not been asleep the whole time, so he's had to hear <laughs> all. And the, the nurse is like, huh? like she cuts over, like, oh no, it's like, <laughs> I love well, that. I love that bit. That whole bit is great, especially because Father Mulcahy walks in, you know, and, and Hawkeye's like, oh, we're just talking, going over each other's medical records, <laughs> and she just looks mortified. It's it's really great. And Hawkeye has no shame; like he just doesn't. No, he doesn't care at all. Yeah, he needs to. Yeah. He's going to do what he's got to do. Uh, for such a sweet episode, though, I will say this – the beginning is kind of sour in that it opens up in the – after the surgery scene, it, there's a scene in the uh, the mess tent 
where they ask uh, Radar to try and find Kim's parents. And they really – they make fun of Radar for eating so much and it goes on way too long. Like they pick on Radar to the point where he gets so disgusted that he gets up and moves to another table. But they're really mean to Radar and I actually kind of don't like that scene. It's like they, they just take it too far. Like, okay – yeah, he's kind of a glutton, but at the same time, he works really hard, and he's you know he's probably appreciative that this is like probably the one of the few pleasures you get at the mash unit is if you happen to like the food. But like they <laughs> they, they pick on Radar to the point where it actually makes me a little uncomfortable. I, see, I liked it. I, I I think it's actually a continuation of the OR scene because they're mean to Frank and not justifiably mean because he's being Frank. I mean, they like at one point, you know, he's trying to get shrapnel out of a patient. He's like, oh, shoot, I dropped that piece again. And Hawkeye's like, oh, he's over there performing an early autopsy. And even Henry steps in like, hey, hey, we're here to help each other. I actually love the fact that that this episode is they're 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 exhausted. And that exhaustion has pushed them to the point where they're being catty and, and short with each other. I mean, actually, the doctors are both jerks. They walk into the mess hall and they cut right in front of everybody. They do, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there's not even like like Hawkeye's like, you mind if we play through? And I was like, oh my god, there's such d bags in that moment. They have no concern for the other guys, how hard those other guys are working. And then yeah, then they lay they just light into radar because God forbid he hasn't tracked down a single kid, you know, in this entire country. So I, I took it less as you know them being mean to radar specifically, and more like the the good writing of the show. Like they're setting up that this whole camp is on edge. They're like they're exhausted. They're sour, and then this kid's going to come in and and just change the course of their mood. It's going to brighten everything. So I I actually saw it more as thematic writing. I thought it was really good. But yeah, they they light into radar. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that's a that's a completely valid way of taking it. Uh, that 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 yeah, it's like that this this little boy is going to brighten everybody up because yeah, they do. They, I mean, they always talk about how tired the doctors are, but they really highlight it because during one point where Hawkeye's talking to Radar, he yawns in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and he's got the knife in his hand, and he, like, pounds the table a little bit trying to, like, wake himself up, uh, which is really hitting it. But, yeah, that's that's, that's – I like that. I, I like that a lot. That's a, That does give it an extra thematic kind of resonance to it. So I dig that. That's cool. I, I, I take back my criticism of that scene then. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I changed your mind. Yeah. No, it's, just, it's such a well-written episode because – they cover so much ground so quickly. I mean, they really do show, you know, that you start in the OR and you get the horrors of war. And then you, you know, and then radar, I mean, talk about cold. When they sit down with radar in the mess tent and they say, hey, any news on the kid? And he goes, just another kid, you know, in war, like just another kid who's lost everything. I mean, he doesn't, it's the coldest line I've ever heard radar say. Mm. And then he kind of laments quickly and, and, and changes course and was like, well, I, I did, you know, I, I'll, I'll look, I'll see what I can do. But everybody's on edge in that moment. And so I love it because the next thing we see is all of them huddled around Kim in, you know, in post-op. And he's got that just cherubic smile. I mean, they, they cast, this is, I mean, it was, it was, they brought in a ringer. They were like, oh, let's find a kid whose smile could literally light up the world. (laughs) And they, and they bring this kid in. And so when they're huddled around him and Hawkeye's reading, you know, it, it, the, the the joke is everybody's huddled to hear this smut that he's reading to him, this like Harlequin, you know, dime store romance. But I also think they're all huddled around Kim because it's this like little glimmer of innocence and little glimmer of hope that they're all sort of clinging to. And and then from that point forward, the episode gets lighter and funnier and, you know, until until they again, the uppercut comes at the end. Yeah, I mean, I like how they all take to, to Kim, except for Frank, of course, who doesn't care because it, it's uh, as we see in a later scene, Kim is getting in the way of his his quote unquote Thursday nights with Margaret, <laughs> and he doesn't like that. Uh, but yeah, the the, the the kid who plays Kim, 
Uh, his name is Edgar Miller, which is like the most old-timey old man name possible for a little boy. <laughs> this is his sole credit. He has no other credits oh, in wow. all of IMDb. And so there is some guy walking around about my age who was like, yeah, I was on a mash once. <laughs> like, I was like the, That's hilarious. They named an episode after me. It's kind of strange. I mean, I guess the kid wasn't – he doesn't um, – he never talks. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess maybe he wasn't an actor particularly or, or whatever. But, yeah, I know this is it. This is it for, for little Edgar Miller. This is one, <laughs> it's one shot. I wonder if he was – you know, like there's always those great stories when, when something like this where it's like, oh, he was a PA's kid or he was, right, you know, right. somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who was like, oh, I have a friend who was a really cute five-year-old. Yeah, let's just bring him in. All he's got to do is lay there and smile. But, I mean, but it, it was great casting because that kid is adorable. Yeah, and, and that's a weird name. Like like Edgar Miller should be chomping on a cigar and, right, and yeah. you know, shouting about the end of the newspaper industry. He shouldn't right. be lying in bed in, you know, in Korea. Maybe like a 70-year-old dude with suspenders, Edgar Miller. Like, what? Ed, <laughs> Edgar Miller directed several musicals in the 1930s, you know, that kind of thing. Not a, not a cute little Korean boy. But you mentioned the scene in, in post-op, and oh, my God. And we'll get to it when we talk to – when we get when we do um, favorite jokes. But the scene of, of Hawkeye reading him the smut is fantastic. And then Trapper comes in with the pickled onions and the anchovies. And I'm like, I can't ever figure out that joke because it's like he's not literally giving those kids that food. So why is he doing that? Like why does he bring that stuff? It almost, I think he almost does it just to kind of like irritate Frank and Hot Lips or something. Because clearly you can't give a child jars of crap food like that. Well, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of like the times when – you're babysitting or like, you know, I have a daughter and, and there's, there's times when you're, you're out somewhere and you don't have, you know, when they're little, little and you don't have like their favorite toy or something to keep them occupied. So you literally give them like, Hey, here's an empty box and a spool of thread. Or like, you know, <laughs> here's a, here's a shard of glass from a window. Like go create a whole world. Like, like you just throw whatever you've got near them. And you know, the, the kids can turn anything into a toy. So I think Trapper was just like, Oh, Hey, this has like a, you know, the, the onions are from England apparently. Cause they had like a, you know, a British flag on the jar. And he's like, I'll just show them this and he can, you know, hold the jar and whatever. You know, I, I just, I don't think he was thinking, I think he was just trying to, to, offer something to keep the kid occupied. That's interesting. I didn't think about that, but you're right. Now there's a, f- a funny little detail you notice there is where he's reading the smut and Hawk- uh, Frank and Hollips come in and say, you know, how dare you read the smut to a child? And he's like, oh, it's perfectly clean American smut. And then he says, do you guys want me to stop? And then there's a cut over to the other side and you clear, you see that everyone in post-op is hanging on every word. <laughs> and if you, if you look carefully, it goes by very fast. You'll notice that private Roy Goldman and Igor are among mm-hmm. the wounded. Uh, they've got yeah. bandages, so clearly they're just subbing in, and they figured nobody would notice that this is like. Wait a minute! Did members <laughs> of the four seven seven get wounded at some point? Yeah, they were just filling in the crowd. Yeah, I noticed that too when they pan there quickly. But the, the it's a great little like I don't know, almost like a vaudevillian moment because they all go no in yeah. conjunction. Yeah, it was a really cute moment. It was great, and they're all hanging on. They're all like this. So excited. now it's frustrating to me because the book that Hawkeye's reading is missing a cover. So yeah. uh, that way, I guess they maybe copyright wise, they couldn't, they didn't want to have the, the cover on it. Or Although they're frequently that happened in mash props. You see things without covers and stuff. I have no idea. And again, we'll get to it in a minute. I have no idea whether that's a real book or not. I have a feeling there, it was There's made, no way it can written, be. Okay. All right. It's, yeah. it's so over the top. Yeah. That you have to figure it was the writers just writing their own version of smut, you know, like 1950s, you know, pulp smut kind of stuff. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's there. It's mash version of, of smut. It's like, super tongue in cheek, you know, and then, and then at one point he's like, and then a piano dropped on me and the floor rose up to meet my face. And, and I mean, it's so, it's really great. It's really, and it plays right to his, you know, whole Groucho Marx, 
you know, kind of kind of vibe going on. So I don't I don't think it's a real book because the lines are too too mashy. You know, Maybe they just so. read they read too much like the rest of the of the show. Yeah, that, that's probably probably right. Uh, there is uh, we talk about there's the scene we already talked about with Leslie Evans as Nurse Mitchell, where she's just post coital with Hawkeye. This is her final appearance on the show. Uh, they get rid of her after this, unfortunately. Um, and then the scene uh, with uh, with Frank and Hot Lips in Margaret's tent, where we find <laughs> out that uh, that Frank is not uh, not to put too fine a point on. It. He's not going to get laid that night because Kim uh, yeah. is there. That scene is always cut in syndication. I have n- I did really? Yeah, I've never seen that scene until I got the DVDs. Uh, so I have to say, <laughs> that's funny that you mentioned that because that scene is filthy that, and, and yep. it's filthy because of their tr- attempt to not be filthy. Like instead of saying, you know, like he's like, I'm here to have sex. You know, she, she glit Margaret glares at him and he's like, I'm here for a discussion. You, and that whole talk, especially when she he says, we haven't discussed anything in a week. And she goes, what about Monday? And he goes, short discussions, don't, short talks don't count. And I, I, I bent over laughing and I went, that is the filthiest thing ever to air on TV. Like, like that is, man, that could go a lot of different ways. And so, so I'm not surprised it's not in syndication, but it killed me. That Frank actually, I think Frank is is the low key all star of this episode because Larry Linville has to he has to sell a lot of moments in this episode with just his eyes. You know, he's got those great blue eyes, yeah. and he's got to do that whole Frank thing where he's like. You know the innocent eye, but really he's a you know total pervert and the kind of judgy thing. But he's a jerk. But then he actually, you know, in the end, when when Kim is in the minefield, Frank is just as freaked out as everybody else. So yes. I don't know. I kind of I kind of love him in this episode. I like that Kim. Uh, Kim obviously is. They're teaching him Korean, or Margaret is. So he probably doesn't understand the conversations that Margaret yeah. and Frank are having, but he can sense something. Because at one point he makes eye contact with Frank and he sticks his tongue out, and so he know like he kind of gets a sense that that Frank is there and Frank doesn't want Kim there and Kim is there and he knows that 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 this nice blonde lady likes him there so he knows that he's interrupting something and mm-hmm. that Burns is irritated and he knows that which is kind of cute he doesn't know it on an intellectual level but some sort of emotional under he has some some emotional understanding of what's happening. Well, I think there's also a sense there that he's getting the attention instead of the other child in the room. Like, I think, right. he, I think he knows. <laughs> I think he knows he's getting the attention from the mom instead of the other kid. Because, because I mean, Frank might as well be a child at that moment. It's that is, great. That's true. And this is the beginning of something that they would use as a runner for Margaret. And I really like it. Is that Margaret made efforts to learn Korean? Yes. Um, she's not. T- she's teaching uh, the boy. She. They're reading from Three Little Bears. It's like a little golden book. Uh, but she's not – and the book is in English, but she is then translating it into Korean. And she's, you know, Samcom, set three little bears, Samcom. And that would be something that would go on in subsequent episodes where we learn that Margaret would learn Korean. And mm-hmm. I thought that gave her an added dimension because, of course, in, in later episodes, we learn that Frank has no interest in learning Korean. Uh, as he says, I speak American, as he likes to say. Uh, <laughs> and, and in his mind, it's some sort of patriotic protest. And we all know people like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why do I want to why do I need to press two for English? That kind of thing. You know, the, that's him in his own twisted version of patriotism. But I like that Margaret is like living in the real world. Margaret's like, I live, I'm in Korea. I need to learn the language so I can help do my job. And I, that gives her a, another dimension that, that Frank doesn't have, and I really like that. And I like that they continued it through subsequent seasons. I have a note in here that Margaret's like the kid in school we all kind of hate 
the like suck up kid or the, the nerdy kid who does all the studying or, or that coworker you have who's like super anal retentive. But every once in a while, you have to stop and really kind of go, oh, I really do respect that person because they're doing the hard work I'm not doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like like I, I think it underscores how responsible she is. And then this is a, a line of sort of deviation for her and Frank, I think, one of, the, one of the first times you really see it where Margaret actually cares. Like like Margaret is a nurse through and through. Like I don't think of Frank as a like loving doctor. I think of Frank as somebody who's there. You know, they put the, the patient in front of him. He completes the surgery. He never thinks about it again where Margaret is really a nurse, like she's really somebody. And, and her, her learning Korean would kind of, would, would uh, you know, augment that. Though I have to say, I now her, hear her shouting, Cuchillo, Cuchillo, the way I hear Atreyu, Atreyu from the never ending story. Like it is, <laughs> it is burned into my brain. And uh, it, I will never forget that word. If I ever need to tell a Korean person to sit and stay, <laughs> I will know to yell Cuchillo, and I will do it just just like Margaret. <laughs> it's, it's good, yeah, and she's very, very, very certain, Cuchillo, and even Frank, as you mentioned, like, he chimes in. He goes, yes, Cuchillo! So, uh, yeah, in, 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 at the worst moments, he's willing to step up and not be a bad guy, which is which is nice. And so that leads to the big sort of big finale, and this is kind of like, it's not an action scene, but it's it's different from action that it's got a lot more, it's got a lot of physical tension. It reminds me mm-hmm. a little bit of um, the Army-Navy game, where there's some actual physical threat going on here and we see the kid who's wandered into the minefield and i love that trapper just heads right into the minefield oh, yeah. without a, a, a thought and then he realizes what he's doing and he stops and and he says you know i got to get the kid and hawkeye says you want to make him an orphan again and that's what a gr- i mean minefields are such there's you know they're 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 a minefield really for like great <laughs> Uh, for great tension because obviously yeah. anything could happen at any moment and you never know what's going to happen. So I, I think this – I mentioned this was directed by William Weord uh, who previously in season one directed Tuttle and sometimes you hear the bullet. Uh, so I think he, this is his uh, – I think his final episode, which is too bad because he's terrific. I mean I think he's a great director for this show. Well, and the thing I appreciate through throughout this entire episode – and I don't know if this is – I don't know if this is a trait comic book collectors have, but like I always root for the secondary character. Like I always root for you know Hawkeye to get his own book, you know, versus Captain America, or I you know I always want to see Jane Foster more instead of Thor. And I don't know if that's a comic book collector thing that you kind of start investing in the secondary characters and you root for them more. But I seriously root for Trapper, especially because from listening to your show, you know, I know that that originally it was supposed to be sort of an equal weight, right? Like, like the movie, it was supposed to be sort of Trapper and Hawkeye. And it very quickly becomes, you know, the Alan Alda show, which is great. I mean, he's amazing. And it's the, one of the great characters of all time, but I was so happy to see Trapper get not only the focus of an episode, but get a chance to show his range for Wayne Rogers to show his range. And in that minefield, I mean, I was legitimately worried for him. There's a moment where he steps and he almost falls, and, and mm-hmm. I think he, I think I think Wayne Rogers almost fell. I don't think it was an act. I don't think it was like him acting. I think he, you know, it was a very unstable ground, and I think he almost falls, and he looks up suddenly, and he's petrified. I mean, he has just got this great like the blood is drained from his face, and yet he never takes his eyes off of Kim. So it's a it's my favorite Trapper moment so far in the whole series. It really, I think, encapsulates. You know what's great about him, but it only, it in, in a weird way kind of also underscores that they never took full advantage of Wayne Rogers or of that character. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. Like I said if I was Wayne Rogers, I would feel frustrated too. And uh, when he was given the opportunity like this, he delivered. 
and yeah. he delivered. He's, he really is the, the centerpiece of this episode. And so it's funny you mentioned about having an appreciation for secondary characters. I mean, I do have a, a you know a blog and a podcast about Aquaman. So yeah, I'm kind of into the secondary <laughs> characters. Uh, but anyway, so they had this final sequence of, uh, of of Trapper having to get the kid out, and they have this whole run of like going to uh, getting calling the chopper pilot to bring them out. And in the meantime, they're going to see if they can get get him out. And of course, th- this great bit with the you know the the maps where Hawkeye comes rushing in. Oh yeah, and, uh, and he see he can't find them because he's looking <laughs> under M, and he goes, "No, no, they're not under M. They're under B for booms." It's <laughs> <laughs> a great radar moment. And then with the map, I love. They go out to the minefield, and, and, and Hawkeye's like, I can't read this thing. And Henry's like, give me that. I took a, a class in map reading. And he opens it up, and I love the moment when he tells Trapper, Trapper, move three grids. Yeah. <laughs> what Trapper, the hell's a grid? grid? And then he goes, and if you take one more step to the right, you'll be right in the heart of downtown Berlin. Yeah. And the, I mean that moment when they realize he's reading the wrong map, Wade Rogers' face, I mean it's like I've just placed my life in, in Henry's <laughs> hands. Like, I, like literally, it's one thing to have him be the leader of this, you know, bumbling camp it's a whole other thing to have him you know read the map where i might die it's so it's such a great moment like why would a korean unit ever even been shipped maps of berlin like why would yeah. that even be a thing i don't understand so yeah it's 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 a, it's a really wonderful combo of comedy because of course everybody that's at the at the minefield everybody on the outside of the minefield is being very funny and then you've got this stuff with trapper and i agree there is that one moment where it looks like he's going to fall where he steps on a rock that mm-hmm. kind of gives under his foot a little. Uh, so that all of that is just wonderfully written. And I, I mentioned that this was written by Mark Mandel, Larry Gelbart, and Lawrence Marks. As we know, Larry, Larry Gelbart is Larry Gelbart. Lawrence Marks wrote a lot of great shows. Mark Mandel only has two credits. This, oh, wow. this episode and an episode of a Western show called Dusty's Trail. Uh, again, I, you know, like how do you do something this well? And like, not get another chance to do it again. I don't understand. That's, that's Did he adopt Edgar and leave Hollywood? Like, is that... <laughs> Maybe so. I don't know. Is that what happened? It's a. It's really frustrating. But so anyway, again, they realize now we're in downtown Berlin. Then they get the real map, and then they find out that, of course, Trapper is surrounded by mines. And of course, you wonder how the hell did Kim manage to get to that rock then all by yeah. himself? But he takes little baby steps, I guess. And then finally, the chopper arrives. And there's a nice another little bit of continuity. Is the chopper pilot they refer to as O'Brien? And mm-hmm. that has been – that's a name they've used for previous chopper pilots. The chopper pilot that steals Henry's desk way back in episode two is O'Brien. So I like that. I like that we have – it's not a big deal because obviously you have different people that, that work across the – as the war goes on. But I like that you know a little bit of continuity that we have the same chopper pilot who – works with the 477. Well, and this this is a, a an episode peppered with nice little moments. Like when when Trapper's you know stuck there and, and they all think like oh he's surrounded he's going to die and Hawkeye's like where's the chopper and Radar goes wait for it and he like you know and he again hears it before anybody else. And it's just a nice little, you know, kind of callback to Radar's weird radar sense, you know, his, his sort of Matt Murdockness being able to hear the <laughs> the choppers come in. Yeah, it's it's such a good, you know, and then they 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 save Kim but I mean, t- like the the cruelty of that moment where they land with Kim, he's safe, he's in Trapper's arms, and it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is it. This is proof from the universe that sh- that they belong together, that Trapper's supposed to adopt him. And then, you know, up drives the truck yeah. with, you know, Sister Teresa and his and his and Kim's mom. And you know, and it's hard because it's like, oh, that's such a cruel moment to Trapper. But it's also a kid reuniting with his mom. It's like you know, it's a Paul Simon song. Like it's you know, it's the thing. <laughs> and uh, and you're like, do I feel bad for being mad at this, or am I happy for him? It's 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 great. 
Right. I mean, you, 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 yeah, you're, you're upset, but you also know well, the kid belongs with his mother. Uh, acting wise, uh, the mother is played by an actress named Momo Yashima. She did three different mashes. She was in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, she was in V. She was in Street Hawk. Uh, and she was in uh, the 1981 movie Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, uh, where Peter wow. <laughs> Peter Ustinov played Charlie Chan. And you know, I, I saw that movie when I was a kid. I remember my dad took me to that. And I, I you know, it's, times are times have changed. Luckily, I have to wonder, like, what do you think if you're an Asian actor and you're watching, you know, an English guy yeah. with playing like you know playing this really cartoonish like oh god yeah you know, you'd probably just grit your teeth and you're like well. You know, I need the work, you know, kind of thing. You're just like, all yeah. right, I'll just shut up about this. Um, but the the actress playing Sister Teresa is a name that most people are familiar with, even if you don't know you're familiar with it. The actress is Maggie Roswell. Are you familiar who with who that is, Sean? No, the name sounds familiar, but I can't think of who she is. Maggie Roswell is one of the longstanding cast members from The Simpsons. She plays Helen Lovejoy, Maude Flanders, oh. Lamb Van Allen. This is her second ever credit. Uh, that's in, amazing. In it's Maggie Roswell. I know. What a strange random detail, but that's Maggie Roswell. That, and that's an awesome like six degrees of separation thing. Like, you know, jumping right from MASH to yeah. <laughs> to The Simpsons. That's I, fantastic. I had no idea she'd been around this long. But, yeah, nevertheless, I mean, she, she, that's, that's Maggie. That's uh, Luann Van Houten herself playing, <laughs> playing Sister Teresa. So, yeah, so then, of course, uh, you know, Trapper tries to put on a brave face with the whole, uh, you know, back home, mm-hmm. the kid would be playing against the lights. And Hawkeye just, you know, right, right. And then they walk off. And it's a very sad, bittersweet thing as they, you know, they're just standing there in the road. And, and the whole thing ends on kind of a, a down note. But then there's a, a great button scene. And this is, I think, one of the great uh, final sort of credit scenes of, of, of MASH's history where, um, you know, that we find out that Kim's going to get to come visit, which is nice. You know, it's that he's not never going to see them again. And then they move on to, well, they're, they're, you know, Raider says, maybe you're looking to adopt somebody else. And there's some other kids. And he's, and then they start talking about, you know, I don't know, about five foot five, never shaves, a, a two striper. And, <laughs> and I love that the Raider looks down at his own stripes to kind of like, yeah. are they talking about me? He's like, oh, yeah. And then he says, well, you know, uh, we can give it a try, see how it works out. And <laughs> <laughs> it's a great wrap up because that I actually I really appreciated before that moment when the, you know Kim drives away with his mom and, and Trapper's walking off and Hawkeye's like you know buy you a drink. I, I didn't want them to go for a laugh in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know I didn't want them to go for you know you and I had had uh, reviewed I hate a mystery last season. And you know at the end when you find out that um, uh, Hojon has been the one stealing stuff. They, they just try to make it funny at the end, and he's like, oh, I have other sisters and brothers to get – and they're like, oh, what, you know, what are you going to steal the whole camp? And it's like, oh, ha, 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 colonialism. Like, like I didn't appreciate <laughs> them like trying to be funny in that moment, and so I like the fact that they don't, that they just let it – they let it lie. They let, they let it be this very sad you know, moment, and, and you can see it, and I – for me, it's especially powerful because that scene where, where Trapper says to Father Mulcahy and Hawkeye – Hey, maybe the whole reason I'm here is to meet this kid and adopt him. Like maybe they're like, like, you know, they're desperately looking for meaning in the chaos of war. And he's like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is why I'm here. And and he gets so like, it's almost like, you know, I can take anything. I can take every being here, being away from my family, all the horror of it. If it leads to this one sweet moment, this one sweet, you know, relationship that I'm going to form. 
And then it just had to take it away. I like the fact that they let the sadness sit for a minute. But then, yeah, they wrap it up in a really cute way. They, they, they take full advantage of Gary Bergdoff's, you know, super cuteness. Yeah, and I like that he goes along with it, you know. And then he sits down mm-hmm. and they give him the sip of the martini and he goes, cut it out. And they laugh. It's, <laughs> it's a great button on, on the scene. So he said, this is just a – this is just a winner across the board. Yeah. It, it's got a different tone to it. It's got everybody sort of involved in the same sort of story. It gives us a new angle on Trapper. Uh, it's nice to see kind of just the, the a kid energy. This was not a show that had a lot of children in it. But so when mm-hmm. they would they would hit on this in later episodes that when a kid would show up, it would really transform the unit because it was just like this youthful exuberance and innocence that they really like. So this is, I, I mean, again, it's like, this is just a complete winner. I mean, I'm sure they knew from the beginning, like, oh, this was, this, we do more like this. Cause this was just a complete, you know, a great episode from beginning to end. It's funny. It's heartfelt. It deals with something related to the war that you would have, mm-hmm. you know, kids be orphaned like this, that, you know, war, war creates lots of orphans. You know, we know, we all know that it kills people and we know that it wounds people, but it also leaves lots of people without parents and things like that. And so, uh, it's just got everything. Yeah. And it's, and the thing that's funny is when I think about the episode, I think about the sweetness of it. And I think about the, like the bigger theme of like, Oh, you know, a, a child brings hope or a child can bring hope, you know, and, and I'm a teacher. So that like that, you know, resonates with me. Like I, um, I, this is a weird aside, but this, this episode reminds me of this. I, uh, I was in my second year of teaching. This was years ago. I was in my second year of teaching and my dad passed away really suddenly. Like he, he got sick on a Wednesday and was had passed away by Sunday. And I, so I missed that Monday from school, obviously, you know, to kind of deal with some things. And, you know, I came back Tuesday and the, my principal had gone to my kids, had gone to my class. I was teaching ten, ninth and 10th graders. And she had said, hey, you know, Mr. Ross is out. His, his father passed away. Like, make sure you're extra good, you know, when he comes back. And they were great. They were great kids. But it turns out I'm, we're, we're reading Hamlet in my sophomore class. <laughs> and we're reading it, a lot of it out loud because we're, we're early in the plane. I'm trying to get them used to the cadence and I'm trying to get them used to Shakespeare. And, and so I have the kids performing it. And, you know, we do a scene. We stop and we analyze it. So I, I, I walk in the room and the kids are all quiet. And I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I know you know what's happening. And, you know, obviously I'm sad. But. The best thing you can do is, you know, let's just go right back. Let's pick right back up. So my kids go to the front of the room and they start performing. And it's the scene where Hamlet's returned to, to Denmark and he's talking to Claudius and Gertrude and, he, and he's all sad and he's somber and he's in, dressed in black. And Claudius is like, get over it. He's like, your father died. My father died. Fathers die. It's what they do. And the, oh. kid, the kid who's reading that line reads it, stops. Every one of them turns and looks at me like I'm going to crumble. And, I, and I'm about to say something, and little Julie Freeberg stands up, runs over to me, and gives me, like, one of my five favorite hugs in my life. Oh. Like, just, just, I mean, there's nothing is said, no words. She just runs over, hugs me, and then goes back to her desk and sits down. And the kids all look at me, and I go, okay, guys, you know, I love you all for stopping. I, I love that you're thinking about me in this way. You're awesome human beings. Like, again, I'm good. Let's go back to the play. And you don't need to stop every time we talk about a father dying because we'll never get through Hamlet, you know, because that's all Hamlet is about. But I think I thought about that story a lot when I was watching this episode because there is this, especially when you teach, like there are, are times in your life that are dark and bad and, and you know, are justifiably sending you into a tailspin. And, and when you're a teacher, you, the thing you crave most in those moments are your kids. Like you crave your class, you crave being with them because teaching them kind of fulfills you, but they're also so awesome and weird and 
funny and gross. And, and it just kind of, so I kept thinking about that when I thought about Kim and I kept thinking about that moment, actually that hug, cause it's one of the five best hugs I've ever gotten in my life. And it, and it just reminded me of, of him, of Kim in that moment. That's an amazing story. That's, you said you teach ninth and 10th graders. Is that what you said? Uh, I did. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've been a teacher for the entire century, um, and I've taught really sixth through twelfth grade. But I taught ninth and tenth grade for about ten years. So yeah, that was that's the longest stretch I've had with with those grades. How so? How old was the the, the girl that that hugged you? She was fifteen. That's that's like that's an amazingly kind of open gesture because at fifteen, yeah. at that point you're kind of all like, eh, you know, you're a teenager, you're a full on teenager oh, yeah. at that point. I mean, that's one thing for like a six year old to do it because they're just guileless, at least mostly. But that's that's but extraordinary. You know, this was, well, and, and in that moment, like, and this is the thing I think about in that moment when every like you said, you're you're thinking about a million other things. You're probably not even really paying attention to Hamlet in your stupid English class. Like, just her humanity was the, the, like that just shone through like that, like all that mattered in that moment was that there was a person in the room who was hurting and she was just going to go comfort that person. And, and so that's honestly why I don't, I mean, this is a dumb aside, but I get really angry when people write millennials off. I get really, really angry. Um, when they're like, well, this generation, they're so, you know, they are, they're selfish and they're, the, and I'm like, no, 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 man. I worked with this generation for almost 20 years. They are the best. Like, like they're just as human as we are. They're just as awesome. And, and like, I, I used to tell people, like I'd be out in my life and they'd be like, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm a teacher. And they would always go, oh, and their face would brighten up because they thought I, there's a chance I might teach kindergarten or something cute oh, and fun. right, right, right. And they'd go, well, what do you teach? And I'd go, oh, high school. And they'd go, oh, and they'd make a face. And I'm like, well, what's that face about? And they're like, oh, I just, I, you know, high school, that's awful. Those kids are so, you know, self-absorbed and they're so gross. And, and, you know, I don't know. I just, I remember what I was like at that age. And, and I always fire back with them. Like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you were like that at your age. Cause you're an asshole now. But <laughs> these kids are great. <laughs> Cause I'm like, so don't, don't make a face when I tell you that I teach high school. Cause my high schools are high schoolers are awesome. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, they're, I don't know. I, I didn't mean to turn this into a teaching podcast, but they're, you know, it's an amazing thing. And, and so the, the Kim impact in the episode, like the, really the like OR scene, mess, you know, mess tent scene. And then the brightening up when they cut to him totally reminded me of, of teaching. It, it, it kind of hit me right where I live. That's wonderful. That's an amazing story. I'm, I'm just, that's, I'm so glad you told that. That's a, that's a beautiful story. And, uh, it's not, you know, we need more people like little Julie Freeberg <laughs> to be honest. So, uh, let's, let's hope she can be president in about 20 to 30 years or something <laughs> like that. Uh, no, oh, that's, that's wonderful. So, all right. Well, Oh boy. I, Hmm. Uh, I want to just end the show right now because I feel like it's not going to get better than that. But uh, I, I want to—I do want to ask you, like, what is? Do you have a particular favorite joke from this episode? It, it, it's a hard call because there are so many really great moments. But I think my favorite is in the post-op when Hawkeye's reading to Kim and Margaret and Frank come in, and Margaret's, you know, just completely angry that they're reading this dime store novel. And and she says, somebody has to protect this child. And Hawkeye goes, oh, and that's you? And she goes, I am a woman after all. And he looks at Frank and goes, is she? And Trapper goes, I'd like a second opinion. And it is so – and Frank just looks there like he's about to answer. Like he's about to go, well, yeah, she's – you know, like it's this amazing moment. And then they call it back later at the picnic scene a little bit. But it is – it was so funny and it kills me every time. And it is – I love when they, they kind of go to Frank to like confirm that – you know, Hollis is a woman. That's a, that was a runner that they did. Um, my favorite. I was going to say my favorite joke is the dialogue from the book, but we kind of talked about it already. But it's the whole, the full, the full bit that Hawkeye reads is 
Margot smiled at me, and 400 Angels sang, You made me love you. I didn't want to do it. The Cole Porter arrangement. Then she came close, <laughs> and I could smell her perfume. It made me want to leave my wife and children, and I'm not even married. <laughs> Hi, gorgeous, I said. Then someone hit me with a piano when the floor came up and smothered me. That, I mean, that is so, <laughs> so good. fantastic. Uh, I mean, the line about, I made me want to leave my wife and children, and I'm not even married is so good. It was always my favorite bit. But since we kind of covered it a little, I do want to mention there's another joke that goes by very quickly. It's very unheralded, but I love it. And it's in the mess tent where, first of all, in the mess tent, I love that when they find Henry asleep, they put up a reserve sign. <laughs> like, And this was back when they were still kind of considering the mess tent almost like a fine dining because it had like – if you look at old episodes, you'll see that there are like salt shakers and like mm-hmm. butter jars and like there's all sorts of accoutrement that the mess tent later on, they would get rid of all that because they're like, no, this place is just tables and a, and, a, and, a, and a tent over it. But it, back in this time, they still have reserves tables like it's like, – you know, it's like it's a restaurant. But the, my favorite joke probably is it goes by so fast is where they're sitting at the, uh, the table and Klinger walks by. And mm-hmm. out of nowhere, Hawkeye just says <laughs> – uh, hey, miss, could we get the check? And Klinger, without missing a beat, goes, sorry, not my table. And he wanders out of the frame. And then you see Alan Alda do like a double take, and he smiles. And I feel like that's Hawkeye appreciating that Klinger just was so quick that he went mm-hmm. right along with Hawkeye's joke. I just – I love – I think it's probably mostly just to give Klinger something to do for that episode because other yeah. than when we see him playing catch with, with Kim, he doesn't have, he's not in this episode. But I just – I love that it's just he walks by, the joke, and then walks out of the frame. I just – I love that. It's a great little beat. And, and yeah, and Klinger delivers it so effortlessly yeah, he that he might as well be Flo at Mel's Diner. Yes, like he's like yes. – he's- yeah, it's uh, it's it's really really fantastic. And so the two other things I want to mention is small little details I just noticed. First of all, uh, in the scene where uh, you know Kim is sitting on the rock, and then Hawkeye, uh, excuse me, then Trapper gets lifted up and he grabs Kim. You'll notice the rock is gone. The rock has disappeared. Oh. Uh, Kim is just standing there, and there is no big rock anywhere. So I'm not sure how that. Why the rock would get moved, but somehow it did. And then um, if you go to IMDb and you look up this episode, there's actually a publicity still from this episode. And there aren't, there is not a lot of MASH publicity stuff around. Uh, obviously, that stuff was – that ephemera was meant to be ephemera. You know, It wasn't meant to, to hang around. But there's a nice still – of Wayne Rogers with Edgar Miller looking at each other and smiling. And obviously it's posed for the camera, but it, it has a genuine warmth to it that suggests that maybe these two, like they actually had a bit of a rapport or something that Wayne Rogers really liked working with this kid. And it's very cute. It's very charming. And I just, I like the fact that it's not something you see a lot of. Most of that mash stuff is, is gone, especially mm-hmm. from the early season. So I kind of like that you get to see that. So yeah, as, as we said earlier, this episode is just a, a, a winner from beginning to end. Yeah, it's a, it's a total delight. I mean, it's and it's I, I still think too, is, as much as it's one of the more emotionally powerful episodes, it's still also one of the funniest. I mean, it's yeah, there's so many great moments. Yeah, it's a great, great show. So, well, I think that's going to do it for Kim. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming back, man. I, I always enjoy podcasting with you and I'm so glad we got a chance to, for you to come back for season two. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. I love I love the show, you know, and I, I'm unapologetically a, a fan. I mean, I, I, I think the, the day you released the the options for season two, I like nerdily got to the front of the line, though, <laughs> though apparently not as fast as somebody else for five o'clock, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> but no, this is great, man. I, I, I'm, you know, I love the show and, and um, I'm just really happy to be a part of it. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, so I am at, on Twitter at Sean42AZ. Uh, I'm also the co-host of Secret Wars and Beyond on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, 
We cover uh, every Marvel Superhero Secret Wars miniseries. We cover the brilliant first volume, which everybody loves. We covered the second volume, which could line your birdcage. And we are, we, we are done, though. We have finished – and we're going to be moving into volume three, which is amazing, the Jonathan Hickman uh, volume from 2015. In the meantime, we're taking a little bit of a uh, break for our sanity, and we're covering Mark Grunewald's Squadron Supreme miniseries from 1985, which is just awesome. So, Extremely so yeah. underrated. Well, it, and it's funny because uh, Greg Arujo, my co-host, who's awesome, he loves this mini. It's his favorite thing ever. And it turned out I had never read it. Oh, wow. Uh, I, yeah, and it's weird. I've not been collecting comics for thirty years, and and yet I had never read the, this this mini. And so we're we're taking that tact in this show where he's sort of the expert, and I'm reading it fresh, and it's a lot of fun. We're having a great time. It's it's an extraordinary series, really, really is. It's and really under the radar. I remember I bought it at the time, and when the crazy shit that happens in that, I was like, what? You know, like they really this is like an incontin. It's Watchmen if Watchmen was done in continuity, which is well, and, uh, and sort of extraordinary. And I've heard all of that, and just through comic book osmosis, like you know, through Ohatmu and things, I, you know, I, I knew it, the you know, so like the general tone of what happened, but somehow I had missed it, and so I, I'm super excited. I mean, thus far we've recorded the first episode, and so I've only read the first issue, and I'm already like, this is amazing. So, so it's a lot. Needless to say, it's a big transition from Secret Wars two. <laughs> yeah, a bit. A bit yeah, uh, you, you deserve <laughs> after that, you deserve something good to read. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much. For coming back i really appreciate it of course everybody if you want to find back episodes of the show go to the website firewaterpodcast.com and you can also subscribe to the show on uh, apple Podcasts and on stitcher and we're always talking mash over on twitter which is as at mash 477 cast so thanks everybody for listening and until next week that is all Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one and a half steps to your right. Good. Okay. Now, that ought to put you safely in the heart of downtown Berlin. Berlin? Uh, yeah. What are you talking about? This is a World War II surplus map.